The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. So today we're going to start off in uh, a new minor prophet just for this week and the next two, a total of three weeks through this minor prophecy of Zephaniah. And I know it's kind of a maybe an often overlooked part of Scripture, but uh, it's very interesting the way it relates so well to things that are going on in our world. I know that uh, maybe everybody has different thoughts on different uh, the circumstances we're in right now with the, the news and the things going on in the culture with this virus and uh, different concerns that we may have. And I know today, too, we are... Um, Doing things a little differently here, and, and anytime we do things differently, that can it can be difficult to adapt sometimes. So I, I thank you so much for being so uh, so open to to be able to deal with sudden changes like that. I know sometimes that's not that's not a, a an easy thing to do. So I do appreciate that. I just appreciate this uh, this church family so much, just because of the spirit that exists here. Uh, I know not everyone. If, I don't know if you're aware of this, but not everyone else around, even this community, much less our country, not everyone has um, a fellowship like this. So I, I really want you to, to take a moment just to remember, if it's just for a moment today, just remember what a gift and a privilege this is to be here in this church. And, and it's, 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 such a, it's such a family uh, and not everybody enjoys that. So uh, we, should, we should be very thankful to God that we're privileged to be here with this church at this time. And uh, So today we want to talk about Zephaniah a little bit and his message that he had to God's people in Judah. <clears throat> As I mentioned on Wednesday night, I kind of did a, a little bridge to give us some context into what is happening here. Now, we just got finished with kind of a sequel to Jonah, right? We went through Nahum and that minor prophet, and his message to the same city of Nineveh that Jonah went to preach to, and then we saw the different outcome. Well, here's what's interesting about this particular prophet. He preached in a time that was after uh, a particular young man became king, Josiah, that we discussed Wednesday night, and then he preached so during the reign of Josiah, but before the fall of Nineveh. So it's kind of a bridge uh, between the, the prophet we just studied and the one we're studying now. And here's something else that is interesting to remember about who this guy is and why it matters. We're going to see as we read this first chapter and a couple of verses in chapter 2, we're going to see uh, a little bit of genealogy, like uh, the introduction to this prophet, who he is and who his great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather and grandfather. Who, he kind of gives a little line of his family. But here's why it's important. The king who's reigning at this time, Josiah, he became king when he was eight years old. And he didn't have a good role model for a father. And he did not have a good role model for a grandfather. He had to go all the way back to his great-grandfather and then ultimately back to King David try to get a good example of what it meant to do what God said to do. So he couldn't rely on his dad or his granddad to, to give him a good example because they were both 
uh, evil kings. The interesting thing is, though, this prophet is somewhat related because this prophet's great-great-grandfather was named Hezekiah. And the king at the time, Josiah, his great-grandfather was Hezekiah. You remember that name, hopefully. Maybe a little bit of recognition of the name Hezekiah. He's the one who was dying and ill and prayed that God would extend his life and God gave him 15 more years. If you remember that story in Scripture. And it was during that 15 years that he fathered Manasseh, who was not a good king, and his son, Ammon, who was not a good king. Well, Ammon's son was Josiah. And Josiah is the king who is in charge when Zephaniah shows up. And Josiah, even though he was only eight years old when he became king, he was a good, godly king because he followed what God said to do. So that kind of gives a little background, a little context into the connection between the prophet who God used to speak this message and the king who's in charge of Judah at the time that the message comes. So there's a little overlap, a little interaction here. The time is roughly uh, six, between 629 and 639 B.C. That's when we are uh, in the time period. And if you remember from last week and the week before, Nineveh, would fall right after 620. So it's right before that. And so that's who's in charge. That's who God sends here, Zephaniah, to speak to God's people. But the message, the message is really, really specific. And it's helpful for us today as well. So we're going to read chapter 1 and then the first three verses of chapter 2 of this prophecy, Zephaniah. And I pray that God will show us how it relates so closely to our lives, our culture, and how we can live for God today. So if you would follow along with me as I read Zephaniah beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what God's Word says. The Word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away every man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I'll cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. 
For all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I pray in Jesus' name that You'll speak to our hearts very clearly today. Help us to hear Your truth and understand it so we can be obedient and glorify Your name. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Now I want to just tell you, every time I read this passage this week, when I studied it, when I made notes, when I looked at my notes, when I read back through the passage, here's what came to my mind. Man, this is just this puts you in a bad mood. It just seems so heavy. It seems like there's just it's just God's judgment, one thing after another. I mean, the whole first chapter is just bad news. It's all about the bad things that are going to happen to God's people. And don't forget, the audience is Judah. It's God's people whom he loves. The southern kingdom. And yet, it's bad news. It's, it's all bad news. And so, when I get to verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2, I think, okay, maybe there's some hope. But when we read this prophecy, I, I just want to be honest, it kind of makes you wonder, what is God doing here? What's He trying to tell us? Because it seems like Bad news all the way around. So I just want to walk through and hold out this hope even when we walk through all this bad news at the beginning that seems like the whole bulk of the message. Take heart. There's hope in the end. That's a message that we should embrace as Christians. There's bad things happening all around us all the time it seems. 
But there's hope in Jesus. There's always hope in Jesus. And so for God's people then and God's people now, even when there's bad news, we have to remember there's hope in Jesus Christ. So let's read and study this first part, always keeping in the back of our minds, hope is coming. So we start out with this prophecy in the first three verses, and it's really God announcing His wrath. The first verse is about who's talking. It gives you a little genealogy, as I told you before, the connection between who is Zephaniah as the prophet and who's in charge, Josiah the king at the time, and who's the connection between those two, Hezekiah, way back, the great-great-grandfather of the prophet and the great-grandfather of the king. And so the word of the Lord comes to Zephaniah and after he establishes who he is, just look at the wrath that's coming, the complete destruction. And you look at verses 2 and 3, I mean, the message is bad. I'm going to sweep everything away from the face of the earth. I mean, that's, that's pretty complete, right? You think about God's message of, I'm just going to destroy everything. It reminded me of Noah and the flood. I'm going to wipe everything off the face of the earth. Nothing's going to be excluded. He says, man and beast, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, the rubble with the wicked. I'm going to cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Now that's a, that's a bold statement. And then remember who's the audience? God's people. So let's pause for just a moment before we go from verse 3 to verse 4 because God has announced His wrath but let's pause real quickly here and just say this. Isn't it normally God announcing His wrath against other peoples, other nations, people who are not His own? Because right here, remember the audience, Judah. This, this message is to God's people. Why on earth? Why on earth would God be telling His own people I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Does that cause anyone a little bit of confusion? Because I have to tell you, when I first read it, I was a little confused. What did they do? What did they not do? Why have they garnered the judgment and wrath of God to that extent? This is God's people this is not another pagan nation. This is God's people. Why is He so angered at them? And so I just kept reading. Because the announcement of wrath was just the beginning. Verses 1 through 3. Number 2, God explains His anger. Beginning in verse 4, God says He's going to stretch out His hand against, listen, Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's God's home base. He's going to stretch out His hand against His own people, the people whom He loves. He's going to punish them. So here's what it made me think of. There's a passage in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 that shows us a picture of a father's discipline. So I'm just going to... You can, you can mark your place. I'm, you don't have to turn there with me. I'm just going to... I'll give you the reference. It's Hebrews chapter 12 beginning in verse 5, and I'm just going to read you a few verses, but I want you to just get this in your mind. Remember, God's punishing His people. So in Hebrews chapter 12, a godly father 
Here's what we read beginning in verse 5 of Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord, listen, disciplines the one He loves. And He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you hear what the Bible is saying to us? Heaven forbid that God, our Father, would not discipline us and just let us go. Oh, you, you want to sin? Okay. Be my guest. Just, just go right ahead. Do what you want to do. You don't belong to me anyway. You understand the truth contained in that passage in Hebrews 12? God is disciplining His children. That's another evidence they belong to Him. If God doesn't discipline us, then He's not treating us as His children, members of His family. One commentator said it this way, God disciplines the children He loves to correct their behavior, not to punish them for bad behavior. If God were to punish believers for their sin, He would essentially be denying the cross. When Christ died on the cross, He declared, It is finished, sufficiently announcing to the world that the defeat of death was done. And since it is finished, you and I do not need to assume punishment. We do, however, occasionally need to have our vision and our affections adjusted so we can focus on Christ. See, God punished sin on the cross. So when God disciplines His children, it's not the same as being punished for bad things. It's being punished to correct and redirect where we're going so we will go the right direction, following God. So God tells His people, there are several categories in which I'm going to level this punishment, this correction, if you will. First of all, in the area of religion. The Bible says he's going to cut off the remnant of Baal. When you look in the text here and you see this evidence of idol worship, verse 4, I'm going to cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the idolatrous priests. So he's not only going to get rid of the names of the priests, but the priests themselves. He's going to get rid of those who bow and swear to the Lord and at the same time swear to an idol. There's a divided allegiance, not full devotion. He's going to get rid of those who have turned back from following the Lord or those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of Him. So in the area of religion, there's correction that's needed. They've wandered off the reservation a little bit. They're not serving the Lord fully devoted to Him. He's also going to address their social customs. So He says to them, verse 7, Be silent before the Lord God. 
the day of the Lord is near. That right there, honestly, that phrase ought to be enough to have us kind of take note a little bit. The day of the Lord is near. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning. We don't know when that's going to happen. There's an unknown element to when Jesus is coming back. We know he's coming back, we just don't know when. Well, guess what? If we don't know when, it could be tomorrow. Could be next week. Could be next year. Could be a hundred years from now. But we don't know. You know what that tells me? Preparation is important. I need to be ready because I don't know when he's going to show up. So I need to always be ready. God says he's going to punish the princes, the sons of the kings. He's going to punish all those who leap over the temple threshold and treat it flippantly, filling the house of their Lord with violence and fraud. So here's a question. I wonder what Zephaniah would say about our customs today. You know, sometimes it seems like we imitate the world in so many ways instead of what the Bible tells us, be imitators of God as beloved children in Ephesians 5. We imitate the world. Could it be that we don't really want to be so closely identified with God as His children? Could it be that it's more comfortable for us in the world if we blend in with the people in the world? So we don't want to be different. We don't want to be singled out. We don't want to be separate. Even though the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 6, come out from their midst and be separate. How are we going to... Let me ask a question. If a Christian is not willing to be different and unique as one who belongs to Christ and follows Christ, how... In the world, are we ever going to make a difference in this world if we're not different already? If the world can't tell the difference between a, a believer and a non-believer, what do we really have to offer to the world? Because here's how that looks in the workplace. Hey, you know... Uh, I heard the other day Mike was saying something. I think he's a Christian. Oh, really? I never would have guessed that. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't live any different than I live. I don't care nothing about God. I don't go to church. He lives the same way I live. If he's a Christian, I mean, why, why would I want to do that? I wouldn't have to change at all. I'd just keep on doing what I'm doing. How in the world... Will the gospel of Jesus ever make a difference to someone if there is no discernible difference in the person that claims to live for Jesus? Does that make sense? We're called to be different. We're called to live a separate kind of life, not be separate from the world. We've got to be around lost people to talk to lost people and share the gospel. But we're not supposed to live and act like the world. Does that make sense? We're supposed to live separately in the 
motivation and the direction of our lives because we're following a different master. And if that's not evident, if that's not observable, it's going to be much more difficult to make a difference, to show the difference that Jesus makes. So God says, I'm going to, I'm going to deal with all that. See, this reminder of the coming day of judgment, it was intended to provoke the people to remember their place as His chosen people. To repent, to return to faithful obedience. He compels them because He understands this truth. Life is lived most fully and most completely when it is in harmony with God. That's got to make a difference. It's got to show a difference. So, religion, social customs. He also speaks to the area of commerce. He's talking about people who measure or weigh silver. Talking about trading, merchants. Merchants of Canaan are going to be silenced. He says those who weigh out silver in verse 11 are going to be cut off. Traders are no more. Injustice and corruption in the business world, a corrupt political system, a corrupt judicial system. Well, that doesn't sound anything at all like our current day, does it? Sarcasm intended. This was written 2,600 years ago. It could have been aired on the news last night. You think God's Word doesn't speak to our current day? A corrupt political system? Injustice and corruption in the business world? Corrupt legal system? Corrupt buyers and sellers? Merchants that are going to be silenced? Those who weigh out silver? How about the final area that God speaks to in this particular part of the prophecy? A common life of indifference. You know, there's this... Corruption in all these areas, spiritually, socially, legally, in the business world, but this indifference that seems to be overarching everything, surrounded by a corruption, this great, that's bringing on this level of judgment by God, and yet the people just seem like they're unconcerned. Like it's no big deal. You ever heard that phrase, ignorance is bliss? Here we are. Ignorance is bliss. People denied the certainty of judgment or accountability. You see it in verse 12. Those who say in their hearts, well, the Lord's not going to do good. He's not going to do ill. He's not going to do anything. He's unconcerned. So the people don't even understand the reason for the wrath and anger and judgment of God. They don't even see that there's anything wrong at all with their lifestyles. People might scoff at things like this, but if they do, it's only because they are willfully ignorant. I read one commentator on this particular area of this passage, and here's what he said. There is a high accountability for those who claim the name of God yet do not reflect Him in their lives. 
The prophet wants them to be aware that to embrace God's name, but then to reject God's character, is to defame the name of God. To claim to follow Him and then misrepresent Him in their behavior was a travesty that had to be rectified. A misrepresentation of God's character is only one way in which we break the third commandment. You know what the third commandment is? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You know what the word vain means? Void or empty or hollow. Did you think you had to say something out loud to take the name of the Lord in vain? You don't. You think just because you don't curse that you're safe on commandment number three? You can claim the title and ignore the character and be breaking the third commandment. It's a misrepresentation. And and when we misrepresent the name and character of God, we are not only guilty of engaging in a form of character assassination, but we're guilty of preaching a false gospel. Because here's what it looks like. I'm a Christian. So everybody who hears me say that does this. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see what that looks like. Are you really a Christian? So I'm going to define my understanding of Christianity based on your behavior. Because you just said you're a Christian. So I'm going to look at you and I'm going to look at your speech and your actions and the way you treat people, the way you uh, process the events of, of the world, what your worldview is. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to judge Jesus by you. You know, that's how Christianity gets a bad rap. People don't judge Christianity by Jesus. They judge Christianity by Christians. Just let that sink in a minute. Our whole system of faith and belief is judged by this world not by virtue of its founder, but by virtue of his followers. You think it doesn't matter how we live? You think it's inconsequential whether or not we follow Jesus daily in our lifestyles, in our words, in our actions, in our attitudes? You think that's not a big deal? It's insignificant? Well, guess what? The eternity of people all around us may rest simply on whether or not you live a Christian life. Now, does that mean God is not sovereign and He is not going to... No, no, that's not what I'm saying. God's going to save. Jesus saves, not me. I get that. But I also get this. The Bible tells us not to put a stumbling block in front of our brother or sister. There are enough obstacles to faith in Christ in this world already. A Christian should not be heaping them up in front of people at the same time. It matters. It matters how we live. It matters what we say. It matters what our attitudes demonstrate. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter wrote these words, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. What type of people ought we to be? If we know Jesus is coming back, we know all this is happening, how should we be living in the meantime? Folks, it matters. Godly character matters. It matters to God. It matters for His glory. It matters to people around you with whom you are trying to share the gospel. The end of chapter 1, Zephaniah prophesies about this coming destruction. In verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it's coming quickly, hastening fast. It's as if God has had enough. Did your mama ever have enough? You just knew, hey, I better go duck and cover. I need to, I need to hide somewhere because Mama had enough. Something bad about to happen. Well, guess what? God will not strive with man forever. There is a point in time where for all the grace and mercy and kindness and patient long-suffering of our Savior, there is a point in time when that will come to an end. And He will return and there will be an accounting of our lives. A day of wrath. Look how it's described. A day of wrath, trouble, distress, destruction, desolation, darkness, gloom, trumpet, battle cry. That's not a pretty picture. God's going to bring distress on men because they've sinned against the Lord. And by the way, verse 18 Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Mike Bloomberg. Fill in the blank with your favorite rich guy. Read verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold will deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. You think you're going to have a bargaining chip big enough to head off your personal accountability before God Almighty when we will all stand before the Lord and give an account. There is no bargaining chip except for one. His name is Jesus Christ. If you are apart from Christ, you have nothing to say. No amount of wealth no level of resources, no heap of good deeds will save you if you are apart from Jesus Christ. And that's just the truth. So when this might seem extreme, it's important to remember the, the motive here. What is God's desire for His people? Repent, return, be restored. That's always the, the motive. So it might seem extreme, but God understands that His people love other things more than they love Him. So He systematically starts to eliminate the things they love. Even their own lives. In an attempt to capture or recapture their attention. To see their affections pointed back in His direction. 
You see, we don't come to God to get His blessings. We come to God to get God. We come to Christ to get Christ. All those other things, those are extras. Those are fringe benefits. We don't seek the face of God because He's going to open His hands and give us a bunch of stuff. He's the gift. God is the gospel. See, this, this very truth is what makes the cross so majestic. It's, it's like a, an intersection of justice and grace all at the same time. The fact that God would allow His Son to die on the cross shows His justice because sin is punished. The fact that God would allow His Son to die on the cross for me, that's His grace. He punished sin. But it wasn't just in a vacuum. He, he, punished, he punished my sin. He, he forgave my sin. See, the punishment that was handed down wasn't just to satisfy His requirements so the legal system would be intact. It was so that I could be forgiven. I could be in right relationship with my Creator. I could be restored. I could spend eternity with Jesus. That's amazing grace. So how does this end? Why is this so important? When you get to chapter 2 in the first three verses, there's a, a call to gather together before the day passes, before the decree takes effect, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Seek the Lord. All you who do His commandments, seek righteousness, seek Humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. See, here's a truth that we should all remember. It is only through the door of repentance that grace can be experienced. If we're not willing to let go of some things and turn away from some things and turn back to Jesus... We're never going to experience all that Christ died to give us. Does that make sense? We can't claim to follow Jesus and still try to lug all our sin with us. We've got to let that go and, and turn and go full bore towards Jesus. He's, he's changing us. He's making us more like Himself. And those things don't belong. We have to let some things go. You, you know what happens when you got stuff in your hands? What can I grab hold of if both my hands are already full? Nothing. So I got, if I'm going to grab hold of Jesus, I've got to let some things go and free up my hands so I can grab onto Him with both hands. That, that's why He died. That's what He wants. He says, seek the Lord, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you might be hidden on the day of His anger. 
See, God is just, and His judgment is coming. But He's also loving and gracious, and repentance is the path to forgiveness. Romans 5, 8 is a well-known verse filled with truth. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it seems like every Sunday for the past three weeks or more, for some reason, this same passage in Romans keeps coming back to my mind. I read Romans 5, 8, and you know what it made me think of? It made me think of Romans 8. Because Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I read a, a passage like this in Zephaniah that's just filled with condemnation and judgment and wrath and anger, I need something that tells me there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus today? Are you united with Christ? Do you know Him? Or, or better yet, does He know you? Because... Being in Christ is the only hope. Doesn't matter whether it's a coronavirus. Doesn't matter whether it's the sin that will separate you for eternity. Your only hope is in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.